Welcome to the Von Nelson Podcast. Our guest today is CEO and CIO, Chris Walsh. Well, Chris. Thanks, Dan. All right, Chris. Uh, catching up on, on the last week, you know, a lot of talk out there today, um, particularly looking at the returns of, uh, of the S&P. And you know, as we look at the five largest companies driving the returns of the S&P, um, it's, you know, it's really interesting to look. You know, we're having a depression-like shock today, um, and the markets are, are very much treating this like a cyclical shock. And you know, as as the you know, I guess the the, kind of the question here is a couplefold. This one is you know, how how disconnected is the market from reality, right? And um, you know, as, as the markets are continually being propped up by the largest holdings, largest five holdings. I saw a stat this morning that showed us you know, the top five names in the S and P are up 10%, um, while the rest of the 495 out there are down on average 13%. So you know, the question I pose to you here is you know how um, you know how reflected, uh, reflective are the markets of the actual economic reality? Yeah, you know, it's certainly easy to look at kind of the headline returns on a year-over-year basis and go, oh, the market's completely disconnected. This just makes no sense. Uh, But as often is the case, while, you know, the surface looks smooth and calm, there's a lot more turbulence beneath the surface. So, you know, the S&P 500 on a year-over-year basis is, you know, slightly negative. Um, that being said, you know, EPS earnings are down 12%, but the PE multiples up 12, and that's allowing that to happen. And as you mentioned, you know, the top five stocks representing 20% of the index have an outsized return. Uh, but then you contrast that with the Russell 2000, where earnings are down just north of 20%, the, the PE multiple uh, there is also increased kind of mid single digits. So you get a year over year return of negative mid teens. But when you really get down to the position level and you look at the individual names, the market's actually doing a reasonably good job of discounting the impact of COVID-19. That's not to say that the sell-off we've seen is sufficient because it may in fact turn out to be not to be, but the market really is companies that are not affected, uh, that may be getting stronger because of the impact, like an Amazon, clearly is having a very different experience than a company that is in severe financial distress, and this may be an existential threat. And so we've seen that in energy, we've seen it in the leisure and hospitality space, we've seen it across multiple sectors. So the market is definitely differentiating at the position level. It just happens to be the structure of the market uh, that allows it, as you move up in market cap, to show some relative calm. And that's just an indication that, you know, large cap equities don't reflect the U.S. economy, and that's been true for a number of years now. Uh, but the issue is going to be as we move forward is, you know, are the multiples that were already high and have gotten higher, are they reflective of kind of a cyclical uh, drop in earnings power that then will be recouped, and therefore the multiple expansion is somewhat justified, but it does mean very uh, uh, modest returns going forward, if not zero returns. Uh, or, you know, we got to let the cycle play out. And that's what I really want to stress is you just have to respect the cycle, right? We've had our depressionary shock, 
And as you mentioned, now we're transitioning to the recession. And at the end of the day, you know, we're in the first inning of this cycle and it is going to play itself out. And that's going to dictate what company's ultimate earnings are. Yeah. And so you're you're talking about this transition. And it's it's interesting to point out, you know, typically when we see a shock to the economy, shock to the market like this, um, you know, there's a bounce. And we've seen that, a substantial bounce in nearly the whole month of, uh, of April. Um, and then, you know, we, we typically retest the load or, or even go on to set new loads. Um, how, you know, how do you think that would happen given the scenario we're in currently? Yeah, no, that's right. So typically you get, you're going into a recession, you, you have some shock, you have the liquidity crisis first, um, then typically your central bank sits on its hands for a while and pretend like everything's okay, then recognize the severity of it and then responds and if that response is sufficient and if the recessionary conditions don't continue to expand you then transition from the liquidity crisis to the solvency crisis you get rid of the excesses and that may dictate lower lows or it may have in fact put in the lows but it's that delay from the initial shock where you get the drawdown an initial response or an anticipation that a central bank is going to recognize how severe this is, and therefore the market starts to rally, like people have said, you know, bad news is good news. And then when the central bank either doesn't respond or the the response is insufficient, then the market sells off and goes to new lows. In this case, you know, given the experience of 09, given that the Fed already had to step in last September to backstop repo markets and start uh, funding federal deficits. And given the absolute transparency of this shock, they were, the central banks, not just the U.S., but around the world, responded very aggressively and broadly. And they're hopeful that they have, in fact, transition within a matter of weeks instead of months or quarters from a liquidity recession to a or a liquidity crisis to a solvency crisis. Uh, what I would say is, so how do I think the market could go and set new lows? Um, it's not yet known whether we have really fully or beyond the liquidity crisis, meaning I think the shock and awe of the aggressive expansion of the Fed's balance sheet has been sufficient to address the near-term issues. However, as I've said, we're going to go through and play the cycle out. The cycle may dictate that we have not provided nearly enough liquidity or the liquidity we are providing isn't getting to those that need it. And so that liquidity crisis could creep up or there could be hot spots, just like a virus outbreak. But we are going to go through the solvency crisis. And as I said, you know, this cycle is going to play itself out. We are really, really early in it. Um, and we need to let that happen. So, you know, there's definitely some scenarios where as this cycle unfolds, uh, we could end up in, 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 in a much different uh, outlook and therefore, you know, markets go and retest lows or quite frankly, go to new lows. And that'll, that'll play out over, you know, months and quarters. Right. So, so I'm hearing from you. So this is an answer, you know, where are we in the cycle? You know, it sounds like 
you think we're, where things are, are pretty early on. Um, but, you know, that leads me to, to wonder, you know, is there, is there anything unusual, unusual about this particular cycle versus prior that you've seen, um, you know, given that we've had this depression-like shock and now we're, we're in the midst of a, a, trans, uh, a transitioning over to a recession? Yeah, you know, other than the uniqueness of the shock, uh, no. Like, I, and that's what you can't – it's like, you know, growing up, right? you you got to go from a child uh, to an adolescent to an adult. And economies are very similar, and so is the business cycle. And so we can't skip steps. So we've had the shock. We've had a depression-level shock. Now we're going to transition to recessionary conditions as we grow out of this. I think the the market's trying to gain comfort because they think, quote, we know what's going to happen, um, and it's just a debate on the recovery I'm a. I'm not quite that sanguine about it, and and the reason is is no. There's absolutely nothing unique about this cycle. Uh, you know, we've had the shock. The the next step was short cycle businesses cut costs and fire people. We've done that now. Long cycle businesses are stepping up to do the same thing. Then the the natural uh, economic growth that was a product of prior long cycle investments and and CapEx projects that were begun 12 months ago play themselves out. Then we have a fall off in CapEx, and we have a slowdown in economic activity. Um, I think what's really interesting is when you look at we're still a credit-driven economy. The whole world is. You know, senior loan the Fed senior loan officer survey just came out. We've had the fastest tightening on record, and we've had a record level of tightening in lending standards. And just anecdotally, you know, we've seen Wells Fargo say, hey, don't even submit another home equity line of credit. So, you know, credit's going to lead economic activity. It's going to lead the risk-taking. And when you, when you look at the behavior of credit providers, it's very self-reinforcing. So when you look at the regulated system and the regulated credit system, that tightening of standards creates an economic slowdown that then creates further economic tightening. So that's kind of how you chew through all the excess lending, borrowing, and valuations over time. And we've just started that process. Um, and, you know, an, another element that I think while we typically see uh, certainly in a cycle, uh, it's going to be exacerbated this cycle just due to the nature of the shock and the recession is, we're going to start to see what are going to be viewed as draconian budget cuts for state uh, and municipal entities. And I think politically it's going to raise some very serious issues. And it's also why I think, you know, we may not be out of the liquidity crisis yet. And, you know, just this week we had the Ohio governor announce that they're going to cut their budget by $775 million with most of that coming from Medicaid, K-12, and higher education. I, you know, that's just an untenable situation where, you know, equity markets seem to be doing well. Uh, credit markets are open for distressed companies. It looks like we're bailing out private equity and Wall Street, and yet the average American, some 30 million, may end up unemployed. And by the way, you know, their public education is, taking a significant hit, so are their health benefits. 
uh, and so are other public services. I mean, I, I just think this is a recipe for a long, drawn-out kind of bottoming process and a lot more uh, involvement from the federal government as they take a larger and larger role in the economy. And that is, in fact, what extended the Depression in the 30s was just this increasing role of the public sector in the private sector, whether it was taking over parts of food distribution and ultimately, you know, not being able to to manage those elements. And when you look at, as we were mentioning previously, the equity markets are relatively flat in the large cap area and down kind of mid to high teens and small caps, multiples have increased. Well, implied within that is that, hey, we're going to get back to the earnings trajectory we were on in 2019. And let's say, you know, generously, we're going to get to that run rate by the end of 2021. Well, there's only two ways we can do that fundamentally. One is we do not hire back a large percentage of the people that were laid off, and we further reduce our corporate footprint either by consolidations, the elimination of uh, locations, and therefore you have a similar to what we had coming out of 09, a very slow recovery, very minimal employment growth, and we just shrink the economy to drive or we shrink the productive assets to maintain earnings levels. Well, if that's the case, then certainly you know we'll see a further material increase in populism. We'll see a further uh, you know kind of dislocation in the social fabric, and I think it's going to be hard-pressed to justify multiples as high as they are. The other alternative to kind of get back to that earnings trajectory is, in fact, to allow the federal government to continue and expand its role as not just the marginal lender, but the marginal spender. And when you do that, again, it just lowers productivity. Uh, It has a significant impact on margins. Uh, And again, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to maintain the current valuation multiples in that scenario. So uh, I, I don't think we're out of the woods yet by any stretch. Yeah, so you know, one, one thing we, I think it's important for us to catch up on today uh, is, is talking about credit. And, and you referenced credit in a couple of your answers earlier, but uh, we've seen a, a record level of credit issuance. Um, you know, we've seen companies in severe financial distress access the credit markets uh, I mean, just this week. And we saw a, a large, uh, notable cruise line. Um, and of course, everyone knows the, the, the beating that the cruise lines have received, uh, was able to issue some debt this week, right? So, you know, this really leads to the question of, you know, how could a company ever go bankrupt in this environment? And then, you know, the, the next follow up to that is, you know, what are the implications for equity investors? Yeah. No, that, that is the right question because as we've seen over time, um, certainly during the bull market, Companies were leveraging up the balance sheet and, in the process, uh, buying back stocks. So doing a debt for equity swap to the benefit, initially, of equity holders. And that's now going in reverse. And so, you know, the Fed really has, I think, been successful in achieving their goal, which was let's try to form a bridge for the for companies to get from where we were pre-COVID to some point in the future. 
And companies are smart. I, I'm not going to say credit investors are smart, but company investors are smart to be accessing this credit and issuing as much credit as they can to eliminate the risk of being able to roll uh, their their debt in the future, as well as to the extent they're able to issue equity in D-Lever. So I think cash flows on a go-forward basis are going to be used to retire debt, and equity is going to be used to retire debt. So we're going to start to reverse what we saw for the last 10 years, which was the debt for equity swap. Now we're going to swap equity for debt, and that's going to be to the detriment of equity holders. Um, The other thing to think about, like even the most distressed companies, and we can all think back and remember, you know, we could have said, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, Sears is going bankrupt. And that was absolutely the case. But it took a long time for that to happen because it took a long time for them to lose complete access to sufficient liquidity to maintain operations. So, you know, take a, a, a cruise line or take a severely stressed entity, they, in the fact, can take their liquidity that they have today and that will buy them more time. But that's all that it does. Um, and it usually does it at the expense of equity holders because if your underlying assets are deteriorating within their intrinsic value, meaning their secular stress, or in fact, and which I think is going to be the case for a large percentage of companies, that the recovery is insufficient, that you don't have a lower asset value 12 months from now, 24, 36 months from now, relative to what it was exiting 2019, when you do, in fact, layer more debt on that, you really have impaired the per share value for equity holders. So, yes, it, it you know, the liquidity does delay what may be the inevitable, but it really does come at the expense of the equity holders. And so, you know, I do think, unfortunately, you know, we've been in a period leading into the 08 crisis where capital was rewarded at the expense of labor. That was really exacerbated from 2009 through 2000 and really the end of uh, uh, 18 um, to where, again, central bank policy was for the benefit of capital. And unfortunately, I think really think it came at the expense of labor. Um, unfortunately, just where politics are, where you have governments as the marginal lender and spender, uh, capital doesn't vote. You don't get to vote by the number of shares you own. Every every individual gets a vote, and labor has a bigger say in those policies. And so I do think we're going to transition to a period where capital is treated less favorably uh, and to the benefit of labor, and that's going to have an impact as well on, on equity value. So now you're right to point out credit markets are incredibly healthy right now. Uh, it's early. As I said, you know, the banks are early in workout. You know, CMBS, we have about a quarter of the CMBS market going into forbearance and may ultimately default. All of those linkages are tied together. So if you can access liquidity and you think there's any chance you're going to need it in the next two years, then you certainly get it. And it's also why we've seen companies 
with incredible business models. I mean, even a Disney, which clearly in the leisure category is getting hit, are already cutting their dividends. So just think about how the mantra we've heard for the last five or six years, which is, oh, just buy equities because the dividend yield's higher than bond yields in a lot of cases. Um, never confuse the two. A dividend is not an interest payment, and an equity sits at the bottom of the capital stack relative to uh, other credit instruments. They are not interchangeable. Yep. And I, that's, that's a great reminder. I think that's a great way to pause for the day. So um, terrific as always, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, great insight. Looking back on, on the last week and, and what's to come here a bit. So uh, with that, uh, we'll wrap it up today, and we'll forward to hopping on again here shortly. Thanks, Chris. You bet. Uh, thanks, Dan. The views, information, and or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Von Nelson and its employees. Von Nelson does not verify and assumes no responsibility for the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast. The primary purpose of the information, opinions, and thoughts presented in this podcast is to educate and inform. This podcast, or any podcast in the series, does not constitute professional investment advice or services, and any reliance on the information provided is done at your own risk. Past performance is not an indication of future performance. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that the entire contents of this podcast are the property of Von Nelson and, or used by Von Nelson with permission and are protected under U.S. copyright and trademark laws.